1: What's going on, G.I. Nation? This is Vlad, and we are back to the Generation Iron podcast. Today, I'm going to talk to a legend of bodybuilding, a true legend from the golden era. Um, he overcame a lot in his life. Um, he actually released a book that depicts all the horrors growing up in the South, uh, during the segregation, after segregation. And he's experienced a lot on his way to become a pro bodybuilder, uh, moving to California, uh, meeting Joe Weider, and the whole crew from the Goals Gym at the time, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and getting their respect, and then advancing his career to the point where he is now a mentor, and you know, um, an inspiration to a lot of younger generation of bodybuilders. I was very excited to talk to him, and I think his story is truly motivational. Uh, whether you're a bodybuilder or whether you have goals outside of bodybuilding, um, he's a true—he's a true uh, example of. Uh, dedication and basically not not ever giving up in your life. So I'm very uh, very very pleased to, to bring to the GR Podcast, uh, Mr. Tony Pearson. What's going on, sir? How are you?
0: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, just um, it's cold out here for us. Oh, you in Vegas, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, we well, in New York. It's even colder here.
0: I can only imagine. I mean, it's yeah. like you know, 50 degrees, but the wind. We got the desert wind. Oh yes, yes, of course. That was a problem.
1: Yeah, my name is Vlad, and so it's great to meet you. Um, I was looking forward to talking to you.
0: Nice meeting you too. And yes, I a bunch of your stuff that you guys are posting all the time. Thank
1: you, thank you so much. Um, so I'm glad to be doing this interview. Are you ready to begin?
0: Yes, yes. Okay,
1: great. Well, like I said, it's not a it's an to talk to you, Tony. You know, you're definitely um, one of the legends, you know, in the sport of bodybuilding and fitness and um, I, I read about you, and you come from a very, very uh, tough background. Uh, you overcame a lot, right, growing up. Uh, yes. From, from Tennessee originally, right?
0: Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, yes. Tennessee.
1: And you grew up there like, what, in the 50s and 60s? The 60s.
0: The I 60s. was born, you know, I'm, I'm 64, so I'll be 65 in a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, Memphis, Tennessee in the 60s, early, you know, throughout the 60s basically. You know, the civil rights was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. I had to experience a lot. And I don't know if you read my book, but, you know, my childhood was tough.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you overcame a lot. Obviously, that was uh, the South. It was segregated, correct, at that time?
0: Yes, it Um, was.
1: Yeah. And, of course, you also were dealing with internal issues with the... Outside of, obviously, dealing with the, you know, the segregation, but you are also dealing with the issues internal with the family right
0: yeah yeah i was raised by my great auntie which is my dad's mom's sister so and that was you know she was much she's very old she's very poor and um basically gave me away you know never -hmm. came back to get me so i was three years old when all this happened took place and um from three years old i i became an adult because you know certain things happened to me, physically and emotionally as well. So I was never a child. I never had a childhood. You know, I never had friends, and like I said, very very poor. And not only, you know, there was no one to turn to. There was no escape. So, mm-hmm. twelve or thirteen years is what I was living with.
1: And your stepfather was extremely uh, harsh on you, right? Is, is that accurate?
0: Yeah. Well, it was my dad.
1: Oh, your um, actual father? Okay
0: actual father but you know at two years old or three years old I don't remember him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all I remember is my great auntie and uh, the treatment I got daily Um starvation <laughs> so I guess bodybuilding and dieting I was starving as a child too so um I'm kind of making light of it but it was very serious like you, you literally
1: know. you literally would not eat for for days right it was that yeah
0: or one meal a day, and you know, like no protein. You know, it was very poor. I mean, a lot of we a lot of cake and vegetables. You know, she had a garden and mm-hmm. couldn't go to the store to buy food, so she would just plant food. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the Deep South. You can't you can't imagine mm-hmm. in, in the backwoods. This wasn't downtown Memphis. This was right. like in the outside in the woods where no one would dare to go <laughs> or come look for you. So. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, right. your your story is interesting. It, it from what I've read, right? It reminds me that not not identical, obviously, but there's similarities to Robbie Robinson's story. He's also from the Deep South. He's from Tallahassee, and right. also grew up there in in fifties um, and sixties, right? Yes. And he experienced segregation and uh, also very tough love from from his from his family. You know. Yes. Um, so it reminded me, like one of the things I've heard you said is like back then your parents or people that raised you, they, they wouldn't even talk to you necessarily, right? They would just be like, it wouldn't be that communication that our kids have right now, you know?
0: No, kids, you didn't have a voice. And, right. and that was another thing too, you, you know, you, you don't talk back and it's yes ma'am, no ma'am, and you know, it's old school. It's, uh, you know, my auntie was was born in 1903. So imagine, I think she went through some of the same stuff growing up because you, you just kind of repeat what you know. Yeah. And, Uh, the other thing was i think she was very upset because my dad forced her to take me she didn't want to have a child because she had a daughter who grew up had moved to st louis had her own life and Mm -hmm. my auntie was very poor she you know in the cotton fields every day and you know in the garden chopping down trees and (laughs) had a rough life and and then i was thrown you know he's forced her to take me in so that was I think she took it out on me every day to get back at him. And she was a very she was terrified of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone was terrified of my dad. He was a very mean guy. He always had a gun in his pocket and threatened everybody. And his voice his voice was very intense. So, but she was afraid of him. This is the only person that I know that she would back down when he spoke. And he promised, you know, to kill her if he if she don't take me. And it's just a crazy story. to put in a situation. As a child, because you don't have any options, you know, and in those days, you couldn't call the police because they're not going to show up. So it's, you know, and the neighbors and it was everything's in house, especially in the deep south. You know, you keep your business in your house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You talk about it, you don't share it. I think a lot of people knew what was going on, but they wouldn't dare to do anything about it. They was afraid of her as well. I mean, like I said, she had a shotgun that she would pull out once in a while.
1: And you actually worked in the cotton fields, right? Is that, is that yes?
0: True? Yes, I actually was taken out of school like every year for about two or three months to go to the cotton fields. So coming back to class was trying to catch up was like impossible, you know. Plus, my mind was so focused. When you're a child and you're starving, you're eight, 10, 12 years old, and you you know, you didn't eat for the day, and you can't focus on your studies, you know. And and then you're gonna get a beating when you get home, and so it's. You're just living in a fog. Uh, mm-hmm. and you had no uh, personality. you couldn't express yourself in any way, because that's going to result to another beating. So it's, you just uh, kept your head down. and I remember that. I've always always walked like that. I looked up. I never smile. I, I did a seminar way back in the day. I was just getting into body getting into bodybuilding and this guy he just recently wrote me a note and he goes, "Man, you was in great shape. You did a great show, but you never smiled, not even once." <laughs> and I remember that, said, you know, you had no, I had no personality. You weren't allowed to have a voice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, it was a different time. Like I said, the civil rights was very big at the time. So Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis, Tennessee, right. you know, nineteen sixty-eight. So I was, I was in the middle of it. So I got to see all this on the outside and on the inside, and um, just another world. I can't explain it. And now I look back on it, and sometimes I try to forget it, trying to block it out like it never happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you can't, you know, uh, it's it's real, it did happen. And I, uh, you know, I look at other kids growing up, what was it like to have a you know, mom and a dad, you know, a normal life? Well, what is that like? What does it feel like? I have no idea. You know, no Christmas, no birthdays, no nothing, no nothing, you know. Um, you spend you go to school, you come home, and you go and uh, do your chores. Feeding the pigs, chopping down the woods, cutting up blocks, cleaning the house, washing clothes. I and mean, then just non-stop to bedtime. Um, wow. I guess the worst part was when you're starving.
1: Right. Well, back then as a child, right, when, when you, I'm sure you had, you would try to imagine, have imagination, try to imagine what your life be like in the future. What was coming to your mind? What did you visualize when you, when you thought about when I grew up, what's going to happen?
0: I didn't think very much. Uh, I remember when I was ten years old, I came to my senses. Like I'm an, I think I'm an old soul because I, I, in the shack, I grew up in a shack. It was a two room shack, and if you read my book, you'll see it was a two room shack. There's no plumbing or electricity. Uh, you had, had firewood for the wooden stove, and uh, I don't want to give the plot away, but I was held over that fire in that wooden stove by yeah. one leg, one arm. I was three years old, so um, you, I, when I was 10 years old, I looked up to heaven. I said, God, why must I live through this? I was, I was oh, wise enough to figure that out. This can't be happening. Even though I didn't know any other way of life. Because right. the kids in school, I thought they was going through the same thing. It's just normal. I didn't have any friends, so, you know, you don't know. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's starving. Everybody's poor.
1: For those who don't know, your book is called Driven. Um, and yes. you also, I, I believe you're making a documentary called Driven as well, right, based on the book.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's just about the mm-hmm. uh, Tequila Mockingbird production. Mm-hmm. Out of LA. And uh, I think it's in post-production. Uh, yeah, so this is the book. I, I just have a copy of it here. So mm-hmm. can, can, you, can you see it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's, that's me on the cover when I was three years old. <laughs> Nice. And my sister found that picture. I have no idea how she found it, but she somehow came across that picture.
1: Yeah, because back then people wouldn't even have pictures. Like I, I know a lot of yeah. people from from those days; they don't even have you know any records. Yeah.
0: You know what I'm saying right. They didn't have yeah. a camera. We were yeah. so poor. We're we gonna take a, how are we gonna take a picture? Right. But I remember my auntie. I don't know why, but she took me downtown to a photo studio. I had to go get on the bus go all the way downtown because we're in the country, in deep woods. So we go downtown, and that's where I got that picture. And I, remember st- I, I can remember that, standing in front of those bright lights to take this picture. I'm three years old, maybe four. And I, and I was terrified, and she was yelling at me, and she threw me in the ball, and I caught the ball. <laughs> and that's why I got the ball in my hand. <laughs> Crazy. But no, there was no pictures, no cameras. And I regret the fact, even when I got to California, I wish they had a camera. Oh, my God, ghost Gym, and all these mm-hmm. wonderful moments that I could have taken pictures, you know?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A yeah. uh, Quick question about, the, again, historical reference, but when uh, Martin Luther King, you know, when when they killed him, right? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, hearing about it back then, uh, what did it mean for you? Did you feel like, sort of like, you know, the leader died and now it's going to be even worse? You know what I mean? What did it mean for your family at, at that time, you know?
0: Yes, we knew things were gonna get worse mm-hmm. if they can kill Martin Luther King They're gonna get all of us mm-hmm. so It's a lot of fear a lot of fear. I mean, you know, like I said, there was everywhere. I went it was it was crazy And you know at school and the civil rights at home um, Yeah, there was no way out. There was no there was no way out and uh, My auntie she had three pictures on the wall in this shack She had Robert F. Kennedy John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And all these pictures was on the wall, I remember that. That's the only pictures he had up. So every day I get, I saw those pictures and I knew who these guys were. We didn't have a television, we had to go next door to the neighbor's house occasionally to watch TV. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about all this stuff. It's a very uh, detailed and very deep things that was happening, you know, so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh- so, how did you discover bodybuilding? And obviously, you know, because you're growing up. Obviously, I'm sure you had no access to, to the gyms or anything like that. You know. Oh God, no. <laughs> uh,
0: we moved to St. Louis because her her daughter moved to St. Louis, and she called and said, "Hey, you I want you to come live with us, live with me." And so we moved out of the shack, packed up, and moved to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I think I was 12, maybe 13. Mm-hmm. I went to junior high school there, high school in St. Louis. And um, I just met Muhammad Ali. So it's wow. a big part of my book, you know, to see the champ in person, live. He got out of the limousine. I just ran over to the limousine as fast as I could. Had a police escort following him there. And he gets out. He's dressed in a beautiful blue suit. And I'm looking up at this guy and I'm going, whoa, the champ, you know. Mm-hmm. He was the current champ. And that inspired me. That motivated me. That was the light that came on that there was something else in this world mm-hmm. than what I than what I had been experiencing. I get emotional about this. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, I'm, a, I'm gonna get involved in sports. He's, a, he's my hero. Right. I can't box, too small. I was very tiny, I was a skinny, tiny little kid. I never had a big frame, I'm a tight small person. So I can't box, I can't run, I'm not fast enough. But I was very strong, I think from chopping down trees every day so I said, I'm going to go out for the wrestling team. I joined the wrestling team, and I made the team, and that's how I got hooked to wrestling and working out with weights. And then I you know, hurt, injured my knee, and then, and then had to stop wrestling. But the, the doctor said, go to the weight room and lift weights to rehab your knee. This is 1974. Mm-hmm. There's no rehab centers. Mm-hmm. So I went to the to the gym every day in my high school, the weight room we call it, and I would work out and after a while the knee was getting better and then I started pumping my arms. Uh, yeah. Genetically there was something going on here. Mm-hmm. Then my wrestling coach said, Hey man, I, I've been watching you for a few months. You look you know, you put some muscle on and you wanna go to a real gym? And I go, Yeah. So I was so excited. We're gonna go tomorrow, six o'clock. I said, okay. So I go to this gym in St. Louis in Clayton County. Mm-hmm. I'm working out, I'm so happy. Going to the gym for me was like going to heaven. <laughs> it's a candy store. Mm. I trained for three hours, did all the body parts, whatever I think I could do. And the owner of the gym came over and he started yelling at me. So once again, I'm going to yell get in my office. So I go into his office and he goes, well, I'm going to train you. He was an ex-Marine, tough. Be here tomorrow at 6 o'clock and don't be late. That's how it all started. <laughs> he saw
1: potential, he saw the potential on you?
0: Yes, he saw something that I didn't see. Throughout my whole career, I didn't see potential in me because I would read my bad press that I always got. So it, it makes you work harder. So, and he, and he saw something that I didn't see. The first thing he said day one was, We're going to build those bird, bird legs. that's what he said, <laughs> starting from the ground up. And he did. I was squatting Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 10 sets of 10, 400 pounds. That was the routine. So, this went on for about nine months. My legs really grew. But, you know, I was 18, 19 years old. I was young, and you respond very quickly. And I had good genetics. And I was very disciplined. You know, when George tells you to jump, you go, How, how, how you want me to jump? You know, you know, once again, there was no talking back. I don't remember saying anything to George other than, Yes, okay, or no complaints. Not, I'm tired. No, I can't do it today. I don't want to do legs. or None of this. Because I, I knew him very well, and the moment you say "I can't," that he's going go to go. There's the door. Don't mm-hmm. waste my time. So yeah, that was, it was a good, it was a good lesson. He was preparing me for something. That's what he was doing.
1: What about oh, nutrition? Was back then was nutrition like even in a mix yet at that time?
0: Not so much. People are eating steak and you know drinking milk and having eggs. You know <laughs>
1: right,
0: what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, vitamins not so much. No, no, no. Protein shakes, eh? Not really. <laughs> you just ate as much as you could, and you try to get as big as you could, and then when it's time for a show, of course you you know you watch the fats and you try to cut up and you train twice a day. So we we relied on training. It was the training the most important part. Every day, twice a day, six days a week. Wow. So and very intense. I mean, I you know when I got to California. Uh, I left George, and I said, I'm going to move to California, and so that's how I made it, made it to L.A., because I had seen Arnold on uh, Wide World of Sports back in 73, 74, and I knew their names. I said, oh, my God, you know, the best in the world, and so all Robbie Robinson, Muhammad Mikawe, uh Danny Padella, you know, all these names. I mm-hmm. knew their names. Franco uh, Colombo, and, and some kids had a magazine at the high school when I was going to school, and so I saw... So, when I got to LA, I knew all their names. And I knew their workout plans, you, you know. In those days, you had to have a magazine. There was no internet, so you read about them, their workouts. So yeah, I moved to LA, and um, went to Go's gym. <laughs> That's, yeah, and George was so upset when I left. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, really? Oh, he slammed his fist on the he table. what trade Yes, I was his protege. Everybody in the gym knew he had, you know, he was I was his protege. Mm-hmm. To me, he was like a father because I didn't have a father. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, Well, he calmed down, and says, Well, if you're gonna go, uh, look up Kenny Waller. Mm-hmm. Kenny Waller's in Pumping Out, you know Ken Waller. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, go down to Gold's Gym in Venice, California. It was the first time I heard the word Venice, California. Mm-hmm. Wow, where is that? You know? Yeah, what, like,
1: what was it like when you just when you just arrived there? Like, you know what I mean? It's it's a big difference,
0: obviously, right? From oh back. God, yes. Well, I took a Greyhound bus, one-way ticket, because I I said to myself, I'm not coming back, this is it. You know, I told my sister I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. What do you mean I'm not coming back? I said, I'm going to LA and that's it. If I survive, I make it. If I don't, I don't. The bus arrived downtown LA. It was congested, crowded, noisy, dirty, filthy. It was just wall-to-wall people. I mean, Mm. it's like another planet. That's what I thought. I said, this is like being on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like St. Louis, where I'm from, <laughs> or <Right>. Memphis. <laughs> Laid back, you know, Midwest, come on. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what it was like. And I spent 10 days. I'm not going to tell you, I want you to read the book. I spent 10 days downtown. Don't ask me why so long. I think in shock of where to go. Mm-hmm. I had never been to LA, I didn't know anyone. Did you have any money with you? I had $75. And uh, yeah, I was cutting the lawns for my neighbors and miscellaneous stuff. Some parts I'm leaving out because I was not with my auntie at the time. Maybe people should read about that. So I had, I was with my adopted mother. I was, I was adopted when I was 16. So I was living with her and my best friend, Scott. So yeah, I would um, cut the people's lawn came up with $75, and I took back my graduation clothes for the rest of the money. Mm -hmm. So one-way ticket was $75 and two pairs of jeans. And very tough in the beginning, very tough. L.A. was, L.A. is, you know, L.A. then is L.A. now. (laughs) It didn't change, I'm sure it was worse. So downtown L.A. was just crazy. After 10 days, I, I made my way to venice to santa monica venice and i went to the original ghost gym and on pacific avenue Mm -hmm. i mean it's like a blessing to be able to see that up close i walked in the first day and i saw joe weider he was training frank zane Frank had felt on very tight and he was like really tan he's really cut so I just went and sat in the corner, and I just watched, and I was 19 years old. I know all their names, I saw him on TV. He was taking photos of him. There was Robbie Robinson, there was Manuel Perry. Uh, you name it, they all was there. Except for Arnold, he was not there. And for about a half an hour, I was just watching them work out, and it was the most intense training sessions I've ever seen. I mean, you're not drinking water, you're not talking. You don't have enough energy to talk. <laughs> So, and they all looked mean, very intense. I think it was a couple of weeks, a couple of months before the '76 Mr. Olympia, because the gym was full of all the pros, Bill Grant, you name and they were there. And they all had these massive arms. Like, Man, they got huge arms <laughs> and a small waistline. Everybody had very small waist. And I was sitting there going, if I train hard enough, I think someday I could be like these guys. That's what I said to myself. And then I got thrown out of the gym. <laughs> The guy goes, I couldn't, I didn't have any money. Oh. And I'm sitting, and he goes, Hey kid, what are you sitting in the corner? Get over here. So I went over to the front counter. I think the guy name was Dan Howard. I'll never forget his name. He looked at me and he goes, What are you doing here? I said, well, can I work out for the day? He says, No, you have any money? I don't have any money. And then uh, I asked him if Arnold was there. He says, No, he was here a couple hours ago. He said, We can't have you hanging around the gym. You got to leave. Okay. So I took my little suitcase, my little suitcase, and I walked out. And and then from there, you know, from Golds Pacific Avenue to Muscle Beach, it's like you know, five minutes walk, yeah. mm-hmm. right off the boardwalk. So I walked over there. Right on the late, Yes, right on the right on the beach, the old with the weight pen, the mm-hmm. old one. Yeah. And that's where I ended up. And I would train there every day because like it was three dollars, three dollars for the day, mm-hmm. no, for the week. How we trained there, and um, a lot of the pros were actually training out there. It was a very popular place. People from all over the world, tourists, just hanging around the weight pen, watching guys lift weights. I mean, you know, at those days it was a new bodybuilding. was so new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was in the mid 70s. What is bodybuilding? What What do you call that? Does guys build their muscles. I mean, back in in St. Louis, I would go to school every day. And the guys, the, and they noticed I was getting bigger. It's, oh, my God, Hercules. They called me Hercules. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was big. I was I was not big at all. But I had muscles. Mm-hmm. And But the other side was you must be some freak because you have to weight room every day. You know, you don't lift weights. What is that? Mm-hmm. So they couldn't understand. And you're in the mirror. You're lifting weights. You want big arms, big chest. So you, you had to be in California. That was the only place in America that was – I guess acceptable, (laughs) going Mm -hmm. out there. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of the guys from all over the world would go to go to Venice Mm -hmm. to work out and train. So
1: how did you you go from that point to where you became a professional and when you started working out with Arnold? Because I know you, you Arnold, became close, right?
0: Yes, he discovered me. Um, How did that happen? From that point on, about four months later, I won Mr. Venice Beach, and I was so proud. Mm -hmm first title. And then about a month later, Arnold came over to me doing one of my crazy squat sessions, 10 sets of 10. It's 110 degrees outside. And you're outside and I'm squatting with no mirrors. And I turn around and Arnold was there and he says, you know, I've been watching you. You're training really hard. You got, you know, potential and you're going to be a great champion someday. That's what he said really so yeah he was the first one to introduce me to joe weeder and he wrote down the address i had never heard of joe Weeder. he wrote down the address and from venice to woodland hills mm-hmm. where this was it took i had to take three buses to get there that's how far how long it took and uh it didn't go very well with joe he looked at me and he goes first thing he says, arnold sent you here that voice and I said, "Yeah, you know, I'm 19 years old. I'm going to be in a magazine. I'm excited." And he goes, "Okay." And he turned away and he goes, "Jack, the guy, the guy named Jack Neary he says write an article on this kid. Arnold sent him." And Joe walked away. So from that day forward, Joe and I never got along. He never accepted me. Well, hmm. so I spent my whole career trying to prove something to Joe. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so that's how it all began. I won Mr. Venice Beach, and then I started doing tons of amateur shows. I won the Junior Mr. Los Angeles, and I won the Mr. Los Angeles, Mr. Southwest. I did all those shows, all those amateur shows, State of California. And I won most of them in a few seconds. And then uh, 1978, uh, that's when it really happened for me. I won the Junior USA, Junior Mr. America. And then I won the Mr. America all in the same year. And I won the Mr. LA. If you win Mr. LA, in those days you are going somewhere because the competitors are very intense.
1: You became Great. a pro You became a pro after that show, right?
0: No, because Mr. America's the amateur, AAU. Oh, okay, okay. What happened was I won and I got suspended because after the show I won Mr. America, I think I'm gonna get these major contracts, you know, you're gonna be mm-hmm. famous, you know. And I, get, I didn't get any contracts or endorsements. So now I'm starving. I went, I went homeless again. <laughs> wow. America's champ is sleeping on somebody else's sofa. That was me. Man. And uh, I got a phone call from South America. And this guy said, Tony Pearson, we know who you are and you know, you're know you the current champ. We want you to guest post for us. And, but the first thing he said, it's not sanctioned by the IVB. Is that okay? And I was so broke. I said yes. <laughs> I go down, I pose, and the night I, I go there, and there's a telegram, so in those days, you get a telegram. It was from the president of the IABB. And it read, if you pose tomorrow, you will be suspended for life. So I had to make a decision, you know, go home broke, or pose. I posed. You gotta get paid, I mean. I Yeah, you gotta eat. Of course. I mean, you know. So I pose, and then, uh, I got my life suspension. People don't know I was suspended for life. Um, And then I'm bouncing around from sofa to sofa, friends' house, and I got a letter from, a call from Providence, Rhode Island about six months later, and the guy says, hey, man, I want you to guest pose on my show. It's not IFPB sanctioned. (laughs) Okay. So I go to Providence, Rhode Island, and I guest pose, and I was always in shape. I would. Con, you know genetically I got a fast metabolism you know I was training really hard I was always in shape so I was in really top form for that gas posing mm-hmm. I'm off stage and his kid run backstage he goes man you're in great shape mr. Whirl is in New York next weekend you should go I'll drive you okay why not so I was happy to get to New York because his driving was crazy. I <laughs> almost died going there. <laughs> so I won the show in New York, and that's how I turned pro. That's how. So they I they
1: let you they let you they let you become a pro.
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I won Mister World. It was Waba, not Waba. It was WBBG. Dan Laurie. Mm-hmm. Dan Laurie's show. And if you win that show, which I did, you automatically get a a ticket to go to London mm-hmm. to compete with Mr. Universe, same year, mm-hmm. so I go to London and I came in second to Enlulu from Turkey, mm-hmm. so he Won of major shows, and I thought I should've won, of course we gotta think that. It was, a, it was a battle, I wrote about it, it was a battle, mm-hmm. but he wins, so I got second, and I came back home, and um, the following year I went back to London and I won the Pro Universe. Mm-hmm. And then came back home. After a couple of years, my friend said to me, Good friend of mine, he passed away. His name is Kent Keen. He used to be the manager at Gold's Gym. And he goes, Man, you need to write a letter to the IAPP. They'll let you back in. I was naive once again. I knew nothing about life, I knew anything about politics. I thought if you're the best guy on stage, you're going to win. That's all I knew. <laughs> I don't know how to game, I don't play games. I didn't know how it worked. So um, that's what um, I wrote a letter, and it got reinstated back to the IVB. And that's when I started competing in their shows. My first show was in Australia for the IVB, Mr. Universe, 1981. I came in third. Uh, I don't want to give the plot away about what happened, what the judge told me backstage, but... um, I knew from that point on, I was never gonna win a show. So, but I continued to compete. I'm assuming it was politics, right? Yes, yes, a very important judge said to me, this is what's gonna happen.
1: Is that, did that come from basically Joe, like Joe Weider's influence?
0: I think so, because he was so sure of himself. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he knew exactly what was happening. And I'm thankful to this day that he shared that information with me because when you really think you should win a show and you don't, how depressing that gets right. and how discouraging that gets. Right. But when he, but from now, from that point on, I realize my chances of winning are very slim. Just go in shape and give a good show. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. Every time I would go in the best form as I could possibly be and try to do the best performance I can because in those days posing meant a lot. You know, people pay to see you perform. You know, you know, bodybuilding is an art form. You go on stage and you are a performer, even though you're not speaking, but your body is speaking. Right. Your expression, the music, your transitions. This is art. And you become an artist. You know, Then, and, and I, I, I learned that from this great poser, Jimmy Caruso from Toronto, Canada. I had the pleasure for four hours one day. He says, I'm going to teach you Knees here, toes here, fingers here, this, 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 this. And I just I practice every day. And then the Michael Jackson thing came along and I incorporated some dance moves in there. But did they call
1: you the Michael Jackson Bodybuilding? Is that is that an actual nickname that, that people yes. gave you?
0: Yes. And who gave me that was Ricky Wayne. He was the editor in chief of Muscle mm-hmm. and Fitness in nineteen seventy eight in those days. He was doing an article. I went out to Weeder's office. And uh, I'm reinstated. I'm doing my shows. It's like 82, 83. Yeah. Had my nose done in 84. Had a nose job. And so I go to his office. He's writing the article. He looks at me three or four times. And, Why is he staring at me? <laughs> and then he said, you know, he stopped writing. He goes, you look like Michael Jackson. With that new nose. I go, really? He goes, I'm going to include that in the article. So that's how it all began. The Michael Jackson of Party going.
1: That's interesting. I, I saw the comparison. It was it was a picture of you from that time and it was Michael Jackson's I think specifically it was from Thriller. I think it was Thriller uh, from 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 that from that mm-hmm. album, you know what I mean? And that was that was the comparison. That cover. That cover, yeah, cover or yeah, with the jacket, yeah. you know.
0: I still have that out al- I still have that, that, that album. I yeah. still have the original, yeah. So, blocks. yeah, and that's, that's what it just took off. It just exploded, you know. In, so every article, the Michael Jackson bodybuilding, and, and all the exhibitions that I got, they would hire me because the show, he's going to bring the show, he's going to be in shape. You know, back in those days, when he see you in the magazine, they expect you to show up the way mm-hmm. they saw in the magazine. Right. That's, what they're, that's what they're paying for, and I, and I try not to disappoint them or myself. The other thing I said, I don't want to go there to guest post somewhere in the world and the competitors look better than I do. <laughs> so you know, I made sure I was in shape and and tried to perform.
1: So, so after you, you, you heard that room, rumor or you know behind the scenes that you would never win the show again, like how did you, what was your game plan? Just do as many guest appearances and make money that way and just kind of create a career based on, you know putting on a show for the people basically?
0: Yes, getting reinstated was. I have to give Weeder credit for that. Thank you. Still, because if I didn't get reinstated, I'm really done. But that allowed me to do seminars and exhibitions, because you IVB pro. You're not winning, but you're a pro, and you you know you're a member of the IBB. So they, you know, all over the world, they can call you up and you you can guest post, mm-hmm. and that's what I was doing. But the moment the guy said to me, you know, I looked at him and I go. I'm not a competitor anymore. This is a business. You're a performer. Yes, and he did say to me, you will always make money. And I go, okay. So I'm not, I was not, of course you want to win. You want to win every time you step on stage. Mm -hmm. But if I I lost, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Because that brought me more attention and more exhibitions. Mm
1: So regarding Joe Weider, I mean, uh, you know, obviously he he built a huge empire, right? That's that's a fact. Um, I heard questionable things about him, you know, um, from from some people, um, and obviously you said some things about him right now, obviously, right? Uh, but how you know how 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 do you think he's remembered right now by you? If you think of Joe Weider's legacy, positive, negative? What do
0: you think? You know, I have to say positive because they created bodybuilding those two brothers and without them their creation without me getting reinstated my career was over i mean the you know the european tour was cut short you win nava and university and you win waba world and you win new york and then then where do you go Mm -hmm. but the ivb was still there so course, I would like to bet on Joe Weeder's covers. I got one cover of Flex Magazine because of Ricky Wayne. I got no publicity from them. But I got all the covers elsewhere around the world. I got all the European covers. And that part I don't understand. Because if they had to decide to use me on the cover, I'm not tooting my own horn, I think it would have sold. The Michael Jackson of Bodybuilding, the hottest guy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the answer. I mean it's, 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 it's a business right. First, I guess they didn't like me. Uh, I have to say positive because in my book I thanked him for allowing me to have a, a career in bodybuilding for giving me that opportunity. Yes, of course I wanted to win you know I, you know I, I would always place pretty top pretty, the top five top six but I won one I won one individual. IVB show, and that was in Denver 1993. 1983. Uh, I, I did mixed pairs, couples competition. I won six of those. Six out of seven.
1: They should bring that back. I don't know why they don't do that anymore, right? The mixed, the mix, like a man and a woman post together, I feel like it was very artistic. It was a cool thing, yeah. you know?
0: I think that would be the best thing ever now because of social media. Yeah. I mean, look at all these competitors around the world. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Mm-hmm. And I see incredible bodies, men and women, pair them up, get a choreographer, come up with a routine. I'm telling you, nationally mm-hmm. in America, the companies will endorse that. Mm-hmm. You know, they would promote this. Yeah. It would be the biggest thing ever. Because it's a performance. You were, now you're forced to perform. <laughs>
1: yeah, you
0: don't yeah. walk on stage and hit a couple of shots, wave to the crowd. That's <laughs> not body That's not art. It's, it's lost the magic. Sure. So yeah, I've been writing Instagram occasionally, please bring it back, please bring it back. You want to see couples on stage. Yeah. You know, I, I competed in a show last year here in town, it was my last last time, and that this couple came out, and they were pros. Even though, I, and I, I told them so, you guys are really, really rehearsed. You guys are on point. Mm-hmm. And the other problem with couples posing there's a lot of work involved, and people are selfish and people are all about themselves. You have to leave your ego at the door. Mm-hmm. You got two world champions here, respect, and put something together. I had four different partners, mm. and I respected all four of them. They had talent, and I listened to them. And they listened to me, and that's how we came up with these routines. Mm-hmm.
1: Those are awesome. Those are awesome routines. How do you feel about women's women's bodybuilding in general? Because it went through a lot of transitions, right? And I think in 2014 they canceled it from the Olympia, right? And now Mm -hmm. they brought it back. Now, yes. You know, there's a there's a dilemma happening, right? People say, well, they lost the femininity, they lost the feminine touch. On the other hand, you know, it's bodybuilding; it should not be about femininity, right? It should be about judging of the physique, right? So, you know, how, how, what is your take on that?
0: Uh, I gotta be, choose my words carefully. Um, I like bodybuilding from the 80s. Rachel McLeish, uh Gladys Portuguese, Carlo Dunlap, Corey Everson. Um, the muscle, I, I don't know, it's, it's a bit too much for me. I mean, I respect the work. I know I'm sure how dedicated and the diet they go through. I mean, more intense than some of the guys. Mm -hmm. But I'm old school. I'm from the 80s. I was there when it started. Right. You know, I saw the first female on stage posing. uh, And I think that was the prime time that was really a good time for women bodybuilding. Like you said, they took it away, now they brought it back. Mm It's in demand, and I think social media that we have is demanding that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm old school, and I will always be. I hear you. I was from the beginning. You Mm -hmm. know, I posed with this lady named Lisa Lyon. You know who that is? No. She was the first woman woman bodybuilder. Oh, really? Uh, Oh, okay, wow. Yes. So, quick story. I'm training at Ghost Gym 1979. I'm still there. And um, the owner came over to me one day, he says, hey, I'm putting on a Mr. LA contest next, in a couple of months. You know, you won it last year, and, but I want you to pose this year. Mm-hmm. And I want you to pose with Lisa, Lisa Lyon. I go, no way. Because women were not posing on stage with flexing muscles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, rem- I remember the day in the mid 70s, you could bring your girlfriend to the gym, but she sits on the bench and watch you work out. <laughs> women, women didn't do the weight training. No, 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 no. Right, right, I, right. I said no way. We're not gonna. I'm no way. Right. He convinced me. He was such a nice guy. Ken Sprague. Ken Sprague was the owner of Ghost Gym. He said, "I said, okay, I'll do it." Lisa was an amazing lady. She's five foot three, five four. She weighed about one fifteen. You know, brunette, feisty as hell. She was strong. She could deadlift two hundred twenty five pounds. And wow. Yeah, she came to the gym one day. She's like, kick the door in. <laughs> she said, sign me up. <laughs> and they did. I remember my friend Kent signed her up. <laughs> and Lisa didn't take no shit from nobody. So she she became a part of the, of the group. Mm-hmm. You know, back in those days, you go to Go's Gym, and, you, and all the pros are there from around the world. You had to prove yourself. You know, you don't just be – you, you got to work out hard, and you got to show some respect and some discipline. And – And that's how you become part of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, you're an outsider looking in. And I was very lucky to train with Robbie Robinson and all these guys. So yeah, I said, okay, I'll pose with Lisa. She was an artist, she's a very unique artist, and she says, this is what we're gonna do. I, I knew nothing about that, posing. With a girl, really? So she goes, I'm gonna hire this guy to blow a saxophone live. I said, okay, we're gonna choreograph this routine together, we're gonna transition together. Height-wise was good, structure-wise was good, and Ken Sprague saw that. He saw the potential of her and I together moving as one. Mm -hmm. Couples moving as one, not separate. Mm -hmm. And then she came up with this routine. I wrote about it, it's a big thing in my book, that we spend hours and hours in front of the mirror at Ghost Gym creating this routine, and and we did it. We go on stage, (laughs) two months later, In the middle of the routine, now, you know, bodybuilding in those days, it was hardcore. These fans were hanging off the ceilings, yelling, screaming, applauding, ovations. You couldn't hear a pin drop. So I'm posing with Lisa, going through the routine. I'm saying to myself in my own head, what a disaster. This is crazy. I've lost my mind. (laughs) (laughs) We get through the routine. Two spotlights coming down on us, and the music and the guy blowing that saxophone. beautiful Mm -hmm. classic we stopped it was done the house went crazy it was pandemonium it was chanting stomping crazy and and we looked at each other like okay but this is Ken Sprague's idea not my idea and that was very successful and within a few months Miss Olympia was started wow uh huh they jumped right on it
1: that's history right there
0: Women posing, right. flexing muscles, especially posing with a guy. You had never seen a female posing with a man on stage, and that was the problem. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I was the first one to do. We can't find any pictures from that. Somebody out there got pictures of this, or somebody taped it. Please. Yeah, <laughs> bring, I look for that. Bring it to the light.
1: Mm-hmm. Who do you think, who, in your opinion, um, or maybe you can tell me your f- Favorite five bodybuilders of all time that you find to be the best if you were to just pick only five in your oh, opinion God
0: <laughs> physique-wise uh, woo. Sergio Lever got an Arnold of course Sergio Lever, Arnold mm-hmm. uh, Zane of course you know Amazing. I'm more into this static small waist broad shoulders my structure I mean to me that's the ideal You know, and those are the guys, if I was judging, which I never did, I was offered to be, when I retired, they said, you want to be a judge? And I I turned it down and said no. I used to be judged. judge, I could have, I said said, no. Because I'm gonna probably vote for the guy who's similar to me. Like Samir Benut, you know, guys like that. It's hard to say top five. Ronnie Coleman has to be in there. Well, he's Uh, a mass monster, really, compared to the other guys yeah well you got the old school pros and today's pros right so it's hard to say old school, um you got Zane, you got Robbie Robinson
1: that's
0: great. <laughs> I remember training with Robbie every day, and you would stare at the guy and you see him every day, but it was so phenomenal he was such a freak of nature yeah that you couldn't take your eyes off of him, yeah walk in the gym and you know he didn't talk to anyone he goes straight to the weights this man was serious and every day you go what the hell look at his hamstring you know people criticize him you can't judge a pro bodybuilder by pictures or video you have to see them in person Hmm. that's the truth you know it may be a bad angle bad shot lighting was terrible maybe it's not fully contracting to pose you have to see him front, back, and side in person. Mm-hmm. Then you can make be a judge. Yeah. I see online people criticizing this and this and this. They have no idea, which tells me they don't know anything about bodybuilding. Right. And I saw him every day. One of the best backs on the planet. Small waist, massive hamstring, the best arm in the world. And I was like, mind-blowing. Yeah. So, uh, looks and then, amazing. yeah, right. And then Frank Zane on the other hand, i tell you a quick story. Mm-hmm. 1977, I'm tra- Robbie's training partner, I'm, I'm the kid that hanging around Robbie, I mean, he's 10 years older. He said to me, hey, you wanna go to Orange County to watch Frank Zane guest polls? Yeah. yeah, of course, he's the current Mr. Olympia. Mm-hmm. So we go there, we're sitting in the first row, Frank's waiting for his music to start. And he was standing from the side, It's not straight on. And I'm saying to myself, he looks small. <laughs> 19 years old, what I know. He looked small, and then the music started, and every pose he got bigger, Mm -hmm. and big, and the cuts got deeper. And I was like, Oh my God, this is art. This is bodybuilding. I mean, he really pulled you in. You're at the edge of your seat when he's hitting those shots, and you could tell. I was an amateur. I was a nobody, but I could tell he was so well rehearsed. Because every pose was transitioned perfectly. It was hit perfectly with the music. It was timing. And I picked it up. Instinctively, I'm an artist. I, that's why I got into bodybuilding, because I saw the art. And you create your own piece of art. Absolutely. You know, people you can see flex and see my pictures, everything you see in the picture, I, I hit the exercises in a different way or a different angle to give you those muscle striations, separations, and detail. It's all part of the plan. Mm-hmm. So watch Frank pose, and I went, oh my god, he's not small anymore, he's huge. It was just amazing. Mm-hmm. So top five guys, uh, of course I'm gonna have, oh my god, it's it's. I have to think about that. Well, you, said,
1: Robert, you, said Sergio, you said Sergio, Arnold, yes. Uh, yes. Frank Zane, Ronnie yes. Coleman, and the fifth is?
0: Mm, good question. Ah. Ooh. You got the four already. Yes. Uh, Maybe Franco Colombo.
1: It's a good choice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. But they're all great. I mean, you can't say who's the top five because everybody's unique. Right. And that's what we're missing kind of, I think, today is the uniqueness of the pros. Because in those days, you can cover the face and hold a picture. You know who that is. That's true, yeah. You know who back that is. You know who bicep that is. You know who legs those are. Mm -hmm. You know you know who adds, who does that vacuum? We know. And that's unique. You're a unique piece of work. Absolutely. And each one comes on stage to give her a unique performance. Like Kai Green gives you a unique performance. Yeah, it's great. Every time we go to Olympia here in Vegas, I'm, a, I'm waiting to see Kai Green because he's going to give us a show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so that's, that's bodybuilding. It's an art, and that's why you said to bring back the mixed pairs because now these kids are forced to come up with, with a routine. Mm-hmm. It's more work, yes, it's hard work. You're on a diet, you're training separately, and then you come together and pose for hours and hours every day to be the best on stage. So yes, there's a lot more work, but it's more it's rewarding. You know, I had four different partners. We had four personalities I had to deal with. Right. But you adjust very quickly. Mm-hmm we're professional, the ego's at the door, let's get this done. I remember the last one I did in 88 in Nice, France. Uh, We arrived with Carla Dunlop. So we won 84 and then 88, I I got together with Carla Dunlop again. So we're in Nice, France. We didn't have a routine. But working four years earlier, I had an idea of her style. We got into the mirror in front of all the competitors at the gym. We created a routine at the gym, in one night, wow. and all the guys were training there. All, all the competitors. We videotaped it. She says, "Here's the tape. Go to the room and, and get it." And we we won. Wow. But that's creativity. Oh yeah. Out of nowhere, you got to come up with these poses oh, yeah. that you've never seen before. Everyone's copying, copying everyone else now. The guys in the class of physique, like I could say, oh, that's a. Uh, uh, or Sean Ray's pose or that's Flex Wheeler's pose or that's you know what I mean, that's a Zane pose. Right. So I can recognize all the poses from the old time guys. Are they hitting those poses correctly? No. A lot of them off. And I see everything as well. I'm an artist. That's where the hands, the feet, the hips, the head, everything should be. Or he's hiding himself, or he's not flexing hard enough, or he's running through the poses. So it's a lot of work.
1: Well, of, you know, obviously a lot of the guys from the golden era, right? And the, even the 90s and like, I, I would say every generation is critical of, to a certain degree of the next generation, right? Like, obviously I hear what you're saying. And of course, a lot of people would 100% agree with you, you know? And I feel like today's generation most likely will also have criticism of the following generation. I'm, true. Uh, it's, it's only natural. True. every
0: sport true. pretty much. That's nice. true. Football, the same, you know. Absolutely. Basketball, yeah. I mean Michael, is, Michael
1: Jordan would not respect LeBron as much, you know. He's going to, you know, there's been a lot of jabs back and forth between them, you know.
0: Those two, I know. What are they going to do? But I, I still go with Jordan because, you know, you don't realize how great Jordan was until you go back and watch his tapes. Absolutely. I you, agree. With that's you. How incredible this man was. I mean, like Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm hmm. I kind of forgot about Sugar Ray Manor until one day I was on YouTube and I go, oh my God, I didn't know he was that great. I forgot. Right. This man was phenomenal. Muhammad Ali. Yeah, you got great champions. It's, you, know, you know, the five top bodybuilders, there's some great bodybuilders out there. They're all very unique. And I don't want to call out people or don't call their names. These guys are really, really good. I mean, you win a show, you win by one point you're not beating nobody you're not blowing people off the stage right and then guess what the very next day he could beat you because if you hold holding water a little bit then he dries out a little bit more now he's got you mm-hmm. so that's how close it is you know absolutely
1: now is it true that at some point you've went to compete for uh vince vince McMahon's organization w or is it called uh, the wbf Yes, so tell, tell me about that experience and you
0: know, I'm sure you got bad
1: from IBB again when you did that, right? Yes of course.
0: <laughs> You know, I was a bad boy, but I was it wasn't intentional you had to I, make just money, wore, right? I just make a living I, right. I need to eat okay. You know like, all these things that happen. I don't know anything about politics. Trust right. me. I I don't I didn't play the game I don't know how to play the game. I still don't play the game. Right. So uh, yeah, I was in Germany uh, 1990 hanging out doing nothing <laughs> because my bodybuilding on the IVB stage had pretty much ended like, you, know, you, just, you know you get the feeling it's, it's done so I'm doing nothing in Germany and I got a phone call from Tom Platz he was in New York and I, I wrote about it and he says hey man Vince McMahon is creating a world bodybuilding federation we need competitors we need performers and he goes you know how to perform you're a showman we want you, and he, so of course I said okay. <laughs> I don't have any money. I'm starving, mm-hmm. and uh, you had to come to New York at the Plaza Hotel, and uh, that's what I did. Jumped on the plane, got to New York, and and then he said, "Well, before you get here, think of a character. You know, just like wrestling, we, we right. had character, right. character name. I was the Jet Man. <laughs> I was my back and mm-hmm. spread jets the less." Mm-hmm. So I became the Jet Man, and that lasted for two years. And I stayed three years because I was promoting. The third year, I was promoting IcoPro, Pro, which is a supplement line that Vince and Fred Hatfield, Dr. Spot, came out with. Mm-hmm. It hit all the GNC stores around the country for for a year. Mm-hmm. So it lasted for three years, and then it fell apart. So,
1: I think the reason why, I I, I want to hear your opinion. But I feel like the reason why it fell apart is because it was maybe like. It was great performances like it was very theatrical right but i feel yes. like the element of the sport was missing the actual competition it was it was a super performance you know what i mean yeah
0: it was it was it was competitive entertainment <laughs> yeah,
1: entertainment exactly it was like super yeah, was, like
0: perform- sure you know? yeah the music you know they created yeah. your own music mm. you know you get with a guy and you he look at your routine and kind of base some music to it right. you know my my uh, video is still online with the, the wbf the, the 1992 one both of them, they're still online, and um, the Jetman and the the music, and it was more entertainment based Mm -hmm. than being competitive. But, you know, we're making making money. So Vince paid the guys well, and he was very strict, he was no-nonsense type of guy. You show up out of shape, you don't get to the layup on time, it was drug-tested too.
1: Oh really, I did not know that.
0: Oh yeah, I didn't flunk any drug tests. I was in, in fact, in 92, I was the biggest and most cut I have ever been. I mean, I really peaked, I guess, as an older age. Mm -hmm. But my body, after all those years of, you know, trial and error and training hard, and, you know, I I grew. I grew. Um, I didn't flunk any tests. And if you flunk the test, you don't get your paycheck for the month. Mm -hmm. So I didn't think about that. I just, I didn't do drugs. I stopped.
1: You, and did, did you notice that your physique suffered or you like you said it was it was still no, great? No I, I improved. You improved.
0: Look at the video in 1992 that was as big as I ever been and I was really cut.
1: How did you how did you do, I mean I don't know all the details but like I, I mean if, I, I'm sure the audience will be like how did you how did you improve if you suddenly lost one of the elements?
0: You've you been trained since 1976 this is 1990...92? And I never missed a workout? No, you, you, that's who you are. You, you, you get better as, as you, you get better. I mean, look at Robbie. he won the uh, Olympia at 54. He got better. <laughs> Genetically plays a part, and discipline and hard work brings you home. And Vince was paying me every month. I put myself to work, and I didn't need drugs to get on that stage. I didn't win. I placed pretty low, surprisingly. But I know my conditioning. I saw the pictures. I'm my worst critic. I have to – I'm my worst critic. I will tell you when I'm off. I can tell you this is a flat or I'm holding water. I was pretty much on money, on point. Uh, no, if you do the work, no. Imagine all those years of training twice a day. So I was really re- reaching my peak at that point because right after I kind of retired mm-hmm. ninety. So ninety two, I'm two years out from retiring. So you peak, and that's what happened. I peaked. Yeah, mm-hmm. it shows. Thank God, because see, they call you overnight, be at the lab seven a.m. So whatever you are, you better get it out of your system. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Do you feel like, in your personal opinion, again, drugs should be fully eliminated from from
0: bodybuilding? It would never be, and. You know, it can't be because it's a part, it's an, it's, an, it's an enhancing drug, it helps you. We saw bodybuilding in the old days as being, you train naturally for as long as you can to build natural muscle foundation, and then you might decide to take a little bit to an end. It's going to give you maybe a 10% or 15% more than what you have. And you don't stay on all year. You cycle twice a year, eight weeks, and you're done. So the rest of the year, you're training like a madman. Mm-hmm. So, And then, I, you, you was told, when you're on, that's when you train your hardest. That's when you puke, throw up, bleed, bleed who cares? Pass out, who cares? That's when you train your hardest. Mm-hmm. Because when you come off the drug after that eight-week period, mm-hmm. you're going to going to tend to lose some muscle size. But if you train hard enough, you'll maintain some of it. So 16 weeks out of the year, that was it. And not very much. I was afraid of it. I was one of the guys who was fear, the fear factor. I go, man, I take all this stuff, and then I get sick after, when I retire, no one's going to care. And then, um, you know, for a trophy or a few bucks. And I said, no, I just do the work. We're gonna train, we're gonna make this body respond. I have, I'm blessed, I have to say, thank God, he gave me structure, proportion, balance. Right. I was never a big guy, but I went to a chiropractor once, he, he's gonna adjust me, he goes, you have a tiny little frame under all of this muscle. So I had a lot of muscle packed on nothing, a frame, mm-hmm. a tiny little frame. So I'm a little guy, but I put on enough muscle. But that's the hard work. And look how many years it took, from 1976, 1974 I started, all the way to 2019, uh, uh, yeah, to, to the last show I did, mm-hmm. 94. So that's how you just do the work. It, there is no shortcut. I have trained my clients to go, so within six months, where do you think I'm going to be? I go, I don't know. Just be patient and do the work. If you train hard, it's going to happen. If you sincerely commit yourself to do it, it's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You can't fake it, you can't buy it, you have to do the work. And I just keep saying that, you know, and even today, you know, I'm I'm still training myself. I don't do as much, but I do enough to hold on to the muscle size that I do have.
1: And you've competed last year, which is at a master's competition, which is, you look look amazing,
0: you look great. Thank you, it was the... You won the show. I won the show, it was AAU Masters, mm-hmm. Mr. Universe Club, club age 64. That's but I won, and uh, my body fat was down by 3%. Wow! No drugs. It was drug tested. And, um, you know, they, yeah, so I, I, that was the last show. That was the last time, because it it's, it, it takes a toll on you, the dehydration. Mm-hmm. And I was training twice a day. I went like 18, 20 weeks twice a day, never missed a day. There was no day off. because I said to myself, when I'm resting, my competitors are training to beat me. Right. So I continue on.
1: Were the guys using diuretics back in the day when you, when you started computing? Was diuretics uh, involved in the sport?
0: Yes, a little bit. There were diuretics, yes. But not overdoing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you may take a little something there, there, here, there, or natural diuretics. Yes, diuretics, diuretics are definitely part of it, for sure.
1: But now it seems like it's becoming a, a huge problem to a certain you, degree.
0: Yes, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Um, it it bodybuilding is tough. It's not an easy sport. I mean, it's it's tough. Even if you have great genetics, you still have to do the work. Yeah. Because a lot of guys got good genetics, so he's going to beat you on stage. Yeah. I've seen a lot of guys. I said great potential, but then I go, he doesn't have the heart. He doesn't have the mindset. I can read people. It's he tough. wants. To he wants a quick. Short, he wants a shortcut. Right. You know, he's looking for something else to help him get there. No, 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 <laughs> no. So w- once you get there, then you short lived. You know, those guys hit the top, and all of a sudden, what happened to? Uh, yeah, right. You, you want to be one of those guys. I stayed for twenty years. I didn't go anywhere for twenty years. Right. So that's the mindset, though. You have to have mentally strong enough to say, you sacrifice everything, pretty much. You know, just stay in the game. Because when you're on top, everybody wants, wants to beat you. So that means you gotta go train even harder now. The pressure's on. Right. So yeah. Tell me
1: about your upcoming documentary, and uh, what can people expect from it, and, and when is it gonna be coming out?
0: Uh, um, Tequila Markenberg production. Uh, you know, did the video uh, taping for me. I went back to Memphis, Tennessee, where I was raised in that shack.
1: You, I found, you found the actual shack, wow.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's torn down, but the director and the producer jumped off the bridge and went into the woods and found it, and filmed it. Wow. And I, I go, guys, I'm not going in there. Snakes in there. <laughs> I said, I'm not going. I was afraid. And then we went to St. Louis, mm-hmm and my high school and all the places that i went there where i grew up so just going back to relive i relived my life i went to the cotton field in memphis very very difficult
1: for you mentally to 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 revisit some of those moments
0: i I got physically ill and i'm still ill from it (laughs) because i was forced to stand in those spots you know when i write the book it's easy you kind of dismiss it Mm -hmm. and it's just a book you know just Words on paper. When you go back to relive it, you're living it. And you, you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. So, yeah, I, I developed uh, issues, uh, stomach issues from it. Yeah. Nerves, anxiety, yes. Um, from what I hear, it's really good. It's honest. It's direct. Um, I just spoke the truth. So there's no acting here. It's real. Um. So it's, uh, it just tells my childhood, what I went through and how I survived. And it's an inspirational mm-hmm. documentary. I think a lot of kids are in trouble today. I had a client client the other day, and he says, I had to go to a funeral next week. And I go, who died? He's 13 years old. He killed himself. And, and, I, and I said to him, see? So many kids are in so much, so much trouble today, emotionally, with nowhere to turn. And I know what they're going through because I lived it, I was that child. And I hope my book or the movie can inspire some people that you can survive and that you don't have to turn to drugs, a crime, um, that, you, that you can make it. You gotta believe in yourself. So that's the whole story. Uh, you know, who the person who decided to do the documentary is Joe Weider's daughter. Really? Yes. Wow. I know. I know.
1: Interesting, because you didn't get along with, with Joe, so
0: I had never met her before, and uh-huh. uh, she said, "I read the book twice. We're going to do this." That's what she said, and I was like, "Oh my God." Um. Yes, I, I met her through a friend. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was training in Vegas and Eric the Trainer. You know who Eric the Trainer is? Eric yeah, the Trainer? Yeah, of course. I know Eric, yeah. Good yeah. friend a, of mine. He's a great guy. Wonderful man. Yeah. No one's like Eric. He's the nicest guy I have ever met in life.
1: He really is, right? There's something just about him, though. He's like the most positive person I've ever met in my life.
0: Yes, seriously. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So I was training him. He comes to Vegas. Uh, before the pandemic, and a little bit during this, and he would train with me. He says, you're the trainer I come to. I'm a trainer in Hollywood, but I'm coming to you. So I would train him, he'd fly over, and um, one day he came, uh, he had a friend with with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, this is my friend, so we start talking, and I want you to train him, so we set up some training sessions for his friend. And then one day his friend said to me, you know, Tequila Mockingbird, you know, the lady who owns it is my friend. I'm a part of the company, or you are. And somehow we start talking about the book, and that's how it all happened. He says, "I'm going to give her the book, okay?" So that's how it happened, from Eric to his friend, and that's how I met, Joeda's daughter. Wow, and Full she, she, she right. So I, you know, I was pitching this book in Hollywood to some people that I, I knew because I lived in their life for many years mm-hmm. during the 90s. So I met a lot of celebrities. And I knew a lot of people. Sure. And I kept flying over back and forth, trying to pitch the book, trying to get somebody interested. No one no one looked at it. Mm-hmm. But she said, I read it. And it's a good story. It's about It's not about bodybuilding. This book is not about bodybuilding. Yes, I became one. And I have to admit, bodybuilding saved my life. I don't know where I would be without bodybuilding. Because I barely got out of high school, um, you know, back in St. Louis. I would still be in St. Louis somewhere. (laughs) You know, yeah, so the book saved my life. And um, we spent one year... Working on this documentary, mm-hmm. we did we did the Vegas scene. Mm-hmm. In fact, they, they filmed my last show that I did last year, so it's part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Memphis, we went to St. Louis, and we finished it all up in L.A. Down in Muscle Beach. So went to Ghost Gym, went to Muscle Beach, went to the boardwalk. We had all those spots. We so went back to the old apartment, the first apartment I had in L.A. is right on the boardwalk. Pacific Avenue. In fact, I, I would, from the old place that I used to live, I could walk six blocks down, and there was the original Gold's Gym. It's amazing. I would just walk. So I never had a car in LA. I was driving, riding the bus. <laughs> I was 19 years old, no car. I was broke, I was starving, barely making, <laughs> to get my next meal. So the book is in the documentary, uh, I think they said hopefully February, maybe. Nice the poster is out there is a poster mm-hmm. um, well, make sure to I,
1: I, i'm going to be on a lookout for this film i really want to see it and i hope it's it's a lot of people see it you know your story is incredible very interesting
0: i really appreciate and it Very and, inspirational you know i've been blessed i mean she's a blessing i mean out of nowhere i didn't find her she found me through mm-hmm. a friend thanks to eric once again right. such a guy jesus <laughs> and um, yeah. you know I did I did I don't know why I wrote the book. You know why I wrote the book because for I'll tell you this, for 20 years career I never told anyone about my childhood. My girlfriends, my ex-fiancées, they didn't know the child. So that's how much we cover ourselves and have secrets. Right.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very tough thing to talk about. I mean.
0: Exactly. So I said I'm going to Lock it up, and throw away the key. Right. And you, what you read about me in a magazine, you know, I used to read my own articles. <laughs> and Robert said to me one day, don't believe your own press. <laughs> Make a lot of sense. Now, I had some really good articles. Wow, they made me like a superstar. Then I had some really bad articles. He's the worst bodybuilder ever. You know, oh. he's this and he's that. Oh, he's ripped you apart. It's hard reading that when you're 20-some years old. Oh, yeah. Imagine that. Anytime it's hard. Start. Right. This is what you're saying about me? <laughs> For the world to see? Right. So, yeah. Um, oh, man. So, yeah. I, I just hope this documentary can help s- not just kids, but adults, too. Because we all got skeletons in the closet. Absolutely.
1: Every yeah. single person.
0: Yes. It's a different thing. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Yeah. So, But we don't talk about them, though. And I bet there's a lot of married couples out there that don't know the secrets of their spouse, right. fully, you know. And like I said, I had girlfriends and uh, fiancés, and they didn't know. Right. And some of them, I'm in touch with some of them, exes, and they said, oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> so what happened was I was kind of on a, on a depressed mode, and I went to lunch with a, one of my clients, and I was st- telling her about my life back in those days, and she looks at me, she goes, you need to write a book. And from that day forward, I started writing. <laughs> so that's how it happened. It wasn't my idea, it was her idea. But then once I started writing, I couldn't stop.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like therapy. It, was ther- it was probably therapy for you to even... Yes.
0: You know I mean? The bad part was yes. Now on the bad days, it was very emotional. I would cry when I gotta write these scenes. What my dad did, what my auntie did, you know, you know. That was brutal. And then on the happy days, when I'm winning the shows well <laughs> it's fun time to write this stuff. You know what I mean? Of course. It's funny, this shows how your emotion gonna fluctuate. And then when you read this, you should laugh, you should cry, you should get angry. It should hit every nerve. Mm -hmm. It should hit you deep inside because I put it all in there and I just really break it down. One girl gave me a review and she said you feel like you're next standing next to him when you read this when you're reading it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. It's like a scene. He puts you in that scene and you Mm -hmm. can feel it. Mm -hmm. But that's what I was feeling when I was writing it. I was very emotional. But it was, it was something I could cast away, because now I can re-skim through, and go, eh, no big deal, da, da da But writing was challenging. But going to Memphis and reliving it was really, yeah. really brutal. Yeah. In St. Louis, really brutal. Yes, it's, I can't describe it any harder. Absolutely.
1: Well, Tony, it, it was a real pleasure and honor to meet you uh, over the internet. Um, I can't wait to get this interview out. And keep us posted on your movie coming out, so we can write an article about it and you know get the news out as well.
0: Okay, okay, I really appreciate have you having me on your show. I Absolutely. like us all you guys and everything you guys do. Thank you so and much, Tony. Gra- great, great to
1: finally talk to you, man. I, I, you know, I'm a fan of your
0: stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care, sir. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Visit GenerationIron.com for even more GI-exclusive content on all things bodybuilding, fitness, combat, and strength sports. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are downloaded.